Welcome to the Socialista Podcast, a collection of stories from Las Vegas creatives. My name's Brianna, and I'm going to be your guide to the city of Las Vegas, where I will be unveiling the stories of all of our amazing creatives, makers, entrepreneurs, and community changers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Socialista Podcast. Today, I'm here at Ferguson's in the Tiny Home, and I am here with Drew Cohen, who is the co-owner of Writer's Block. Welcome, Drew. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I would love to just jump right into it. Can you tell me where you originally grew up, where you're from, and what growing up was like for you? Sure. Um, so I grew up an only child in suburban New York. I grew up on Long Island, which is mm-hmm. very similar to any of the other. I mean, the, the New York suburbs, I think, are like cut from all the same cloth. So like Westchester, Long Island, yeah. um, that whole area. Um, so I, I, I grew up there in a, what I realized in retrospect was a very lovely, incredible town to grow up in, but as a kid, I definitely took it for granted. And as a teenager, of course, all I wanted to do was live away from there and live in the city. Um, but I grew up in Huntington, which is a town on the North shore. And, um, it definitely shaped my sensibilities in ways I don't think I recognized at the time. But Mm -hmm. for example, there was a very large independent bookstore, um, in my hometown, there was an independent movie theater for a suburban town. It was very walkable. Um, and very dense with, like, things to do and see. Yeah. Um, so that definitely, you know, was was a big influence on uh, my tastes and the kind of place I'd want to live in. I think it's part of why I can, can never imagine living in a place that doesn't have those qualities. Like yeah. downtown Las Vegas, um, right. for example, which is, is, at least as far as Vegas is concerned, is the most dense and walkable area. Definitely, yeah. So um, why don't you walk me through school? So you went to school in on Long Island. Yeah, so I went to a Catholic school of all places for eight years. Um, I, my father is, is Jewish, um, but fairly secular. And my, my mother grew up various kinds of Christians. So I, I went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And then I transferred to a prep school in eighth grade, which I went to through high school. Okay. And it was kind of a, a typical, like fairly competitive, very grade-oriented, college admissions-oriented prep school environment that I think anyone who has either been to one or has read about can relate to. Um, But it was a very good school, and I, again, took for granted how excellent my teachers were there. Um, In particular, I had some really incredible English and history teachers, um... And I, I really, I mean, I think a lot of my tastes uh, come from that time. Yeah. Um, I, I had, yeah, in, in particular, there, I had a, an English teacher named Mr. Kravitz, who um, is, like, personally responsible for a lot of my, my reading tastes today and all of that, and uh, a variety of other teachers um, that were great. Anyway, so, I mean, yeah. I went right out of that straight into a, a, a fairly, like, a, you know, uh, like an Ivy League college um, and was really miserable and ended up dropping out after one year. Oh, wow. um, it was just very, uh, uh, just kind of claustrophobic. Um, uh-huh. It wasn't the social experience I was hoping for. I was sort of ready at that point to, I wanted to live sort of on my own and have an apartment and a job yeah. and also to date um, people. And it was, this was 2006, 2007. And even then mm-hmm. um, there weren't a lot of like, I'm, I'm gay. Uh, I identify as a gay man and there weren't, um, there weren't, like, a lot of out gay men on campus, which was strange. So mm-hmm. just the whole experience was kind of isolating. So I um, I dropped out uh, for reasons that were good and, and probably also a little bad in retrospect because it's it's an adjustment going from being a, yeah. a big fish in a small pond to being a insignificant fish in a very large pond, which I think was also part of that, that process for me, um, was just getting over myself to some extent. But anyway, so I dropped out and moved to New York City um, and mm-hmm. into Brooklyn specifically and lived there for about seven or eight years. And that's where wow. I met my husband, um, who I 
already actually knew through having volunteered at a literary not-for-profit that he ran. Okay. Um, and we ultimately ended up moving out to Vegas uh, four years ago, a little over, four and a half years ago. Yeah. So what was, um, what was that spark? Like, what was that interest to come to Vegas? So he, my husband, Scott Seeley, um, is the exec, was the executive director and founding, uh, founder, co-founder, um, with some other folks of a literary not-for-profit in New York City, uh, in Brooklyn again, uh-huh. called 826NYC. And okay. it still exists. Um, they do free creative writing classes and homework help for children, I think the same okay. ages that we do at the writer's block, ages 5 through 18. Uh-huh. Um, and previously he had worked, uh, he he had managed and designed the McSweeney's store, which was okay. a storefront in Brooklyn in Park Slope that was connected with the literary journal and publishing outfit McSweeney's. Um so it was a sort of, it was kind of more concept art than store. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. the products that they sold were very silly, and, yeah. um, you know, there were there were in-store performances and readings, and the oh, whole thing cool. was sort of just an experiment, was a sort of performance art meets retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that closed when 826 opened. I'm speaking kind of non-chronologically now, but that's his <laughs> background. Um and I, after dropping out of school, somewhat in, uh, imprudently, kind of dithered around um, for a while. I, I got very early on got a job at a bakery and ended okay. up managing the bakery and doing some like light bookkeeping for them for six years. Uh-huh. Um, and meanwhile, just sort of like tried to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I've always been a reader. I've always wanted to write, but I think I've you know it's more wanting to be a writer than actually wanting to do the writing, which is a very common, like, character flaw among would-be writers, I think. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was just a long process of figuring out what I wanted to do. And anyway, so Vegas, um, Scott had a mutual acquaintance who reached out to him asking if he knew anyone who wanted to open something similar to his literary not-for-profit in Vegas. And at that point, we, both of us were kind of, were looking for a big life change and wanted to get out of New York. And he visited yeah. Vegas multiple times okay. and really enjoyed it. Um, and so we kind of just took the the dive and moved out here um, without any total assurance that we were going to be opening what we opened, yeah. but with a rough idea of what we would be proposing and enough flexibility that if it didn't work out, we would just figure something else out for ourselves. Um, and it took us about a year or so to propose and develop the idea for the writer's block uh-huh. um, to downtown project at that time. Okay. Um, and so we were envisioning a sort of total literary uh, space that would mm-hmm. be one part bookstore because there were at that time and still are not aside from us any independent bookstores that sell like new books yeah. um, in, in Las Vegas and then also an education and performance space similar yeah. to what he was doing in New York and then we actually wanted to have like a writer's colony of some kind or at mm-hmm. least we, we were going to propose this thing or did propose a thing called Rooms for Writers that was like a writer's workspace um, okay. which exists around the country already there are rentable writer's workspaces. I think you told me about that. Did you host somebody when we first met a couple months ago? Yeah, well, we actually, um, this is kind of jumping ahead, but we do have, we're kind of tangentially involved in a, a fellowship program where mm-hmm. um, writers that are being, that are applying through various institutions can get a month-long stay in Vegas oh, okay. paid for, um, and usually the, the expectation is that they'll do a few things with us at the Writer's Block as uh-huh. well, like help teach our classes for kids or okay. appear in one or two readings while they're here. Um, but we never actually did the workspace, um, just partly because the real estate kept changing about where this this thing was going to, where the writer's block was going to exist. Uh-huh. Um, and also, like, there's a lot of co-working spaces in Vegas, and I think that the rise of co-working spaces across the country was just happening at that point, mm-hmm. and so I think the idea of having, like, a dedicated writer's space was sort of redundant at that point. Um, okay. So, but anyway, but that's, so we eventually succeeded in, um, Securing, you know, funding and and partnership from Downtown Project, and in 2014, at the very end, in like November, we opened the Writer's Block, which is, um, it's approximately 1,000 square feet of retail, which is a bookstore. It's the only independent bookstore in Southern Nevada, and we also sell a lot of other stuff, much of it eccentric and strange. Um, We definitely tried to incorporate some of that. McSweeney's mm-hmm. spirit of just strangeness and unexpectedness and uh, 
bring a little bit of performance art and installation art into retail. Yeah, it definitely has a whimsical feel when you first walk in. For sure, yeah, we really worked... Scott is totally responsible for that aspect of the business. Um, and then my my sort of role in it all has just been kind of the retail part. So um, I ordering the books, um, uh-huh. you know, and selling them and just sort of running the day-to-day operations in the store. Um, we both are readers, but between the two of us, I'm definitely the slightly more literary one and he is the significantly more fine art you know design one yeah so yeah I was gonna say because when I came in I was shopping around for some books and like you knew so much about each one like I picked out and just the wealth of knowledge you had about it so I was like he has to be either reading a lot of the books or have some sort of passion in it so yeah I mean I've definitely I've always well not always but I mean by the time I was in my teens um I was a reader I wasn't much of a reader as a kid actually before Mm -hmm. that but um and I I I try to just keep up as much as possible if I can't read a book I at least like to dip into reviews of it and try to make the most informed decisions that I can about stocking the store um and I just I really enjoy that part of the business um so and then so and then the other component of what we do at the writer's block is we have a, a space in the back mm-hmm. through a door where we do free creative writing classes for kids ages yeah. 5 through 18. So those consist of workshops, field trips and clubs. Um they're all free and they're open to really anyone within that that age bracket in yeah. in the Las Vegas metro area who can get to the store. Um so that's that's the other aspect of the business. And we, we host events periodically, a few of them a week, maybe one to two a week on average. So okay, wow. those would be uh, readings or book signings with authors, but more commonly book clubs. Mm-hmm. We host five of those right now and various other events. We've experimented with literary trivia. We've done um, like kind of pop-up readings where we invite a bunch of local authors to read for five minutes each, things like yeah. that. We're constantly experimenting with different uh, formats to try to keep it fresh and you know get people interested. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to um, go back a little bit when you first were coming to Vegas and proposing your idea for Downtown Project. What was your thoughts of it? Had you been to Vegas before? I know you said your husband had visited a couple times. I came to Vegas as a kid twice for two family vacations oh, at really? the height of Vegas's attempts to brand itself as a family-friendly destination. I don't know. Do you consider it? Do you think it's family-friendly? I don't know. Um, I don't think it's family-unfriendly necessarily, mm-hmm. but I do think that in terms of like... So I just recently became a foster parent to like a to for school to school aged children not one at a time I should specify I don't Mm. but um we have like a 10 year old living with us now um so I have a new awareness of like how parents try to program time for their kids and I would say that the big problem with Vegas as a family-friendly destination is I don't there's just not a lot to do with a kid if you're on the strip so I mean It has that reputation of being a sort of, like, sinful, indulgent, debaucherous Mm. city. And I don't... I mean, that's definitely part of it, but that, to me, isn't the reason it is or is not family-friendly. Yeah. I think it's more just, like, is there... What do you do with the kid on this trip? Yeah, that's my thoughts. It's like, you know, people are... It's nightlife, mostly. It is. I mean, it's become... I mean, the nightclub scene here is, like, is has since living here and even before I got here was the... Was, without question, the most dominant. Yeah. Um aspect of the strip that everyone knows about uh, or is or the DJs and the nightclubs mm-hmm. um I mean so in that sense but, I, but so I, I'd come here as a kid and I mean I actually remember I'll always remember seeing a topless magic show at yeah. age 12 because it was just like we just like my family had a conversation and they were like okay like whatever like it's boobs like yeah. you'll survive um <laughs> yeah. but like so that's that's one of my biggest memories but I did not experience life off the strip at all mm-hmm. and this was in the 90s and and I think that um, the city has been booming at such an incredible yeah. rate that the life off the strip at that time probably was relatively different than it was by the time I got here anyway yeah. in 2013. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I liked the vibe here. It's different than New York. Um, I like the downtown area. I don't drive. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I I depend upon either walking or biking everywhere or taking using ride-sharing apps and I was pleasantly surprised by how doable that was. I mean, it wasn't 100% perfect. um, But it's a smaller city. It's not not New York. You're not competing with Mm -hmm. a dozen other cultural institutions every night of the week for programming. And I think that there are... There are disappointments inherent in that, but also opportunities. I think that... Mm. 
it's a lot easier to get things done here and to and to create something um, because you aren't it hasn't been done by 500 people already right, yeah um, and that's that's a good thing um, and it does feel like a big small town a lot it, of the time yeah I've heard that from quite a few people especially some locals as well like they they still have that small town feel even though to me coming from a farming town this is huge and like where so I was about 20 minutes out of Philly so to get from currently where I live to here would be about the same distance from my old house to Philly so to me it's like this is huge like this city is so big like it takes forever to get to one side to the other. And people are like, oh, no, like, I see the same people I grew up with and, like, in high school all the time. Like, it's a small town, so... It's definitely interesting to hear that perspective. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. and it's and it's changing. I think um, mm-hmm. it's it's grown so precipitously, and I think that it's that that feel may change over time. Yeah. Um, but it's a young enough city that there are people who grew up here who knew the other people who grew up here. Um, yeah. And as someone who's come into that as a, some something of an outsider, um, it's it's a different dynamic than I've I'd previously experienced. Yeah, definitely. Well, especially living in New York City, I'm sure that you've experienced a lot of differences between not just the cities themselves and how it's structurally done and how compact New York City is versus Vegas but even the people um, yeah absolutely um it's 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 I mean all of those differences are very apparent on a daily basis um it is very spread out here and that's mm-hmm. it, that's that's it's a bit unfortunate I mean we run into it with for example our, our creative writing classes for kids yeah in New York it was very easy to fill those classes and to arrange for field trips for schools mm-hmm. which are were free there and are free here but the difference is that in New York um, kids can get on the subway they can take a bus yeah they can walk in certain cases and they've grown up in an environment where all of those things are expected of them mm-hmm. and are okay and in Vegas that's not the case and so there's a it's hard to be um, autonomous in this city if you don't have a vehicle and if you're a young like if you're yeah. a really young person and I think that's difficult um, I'm really glad I mean I know that like ride sharing apps and like the kind of gig economy are um, you know, I think that the jury is out on like the long-term benefit or cost that these these things have on us as a, you know, as a a, a economic and political uh, you know entity. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, I think they're really what I've what they've done for this city in terms of maneuverability and access. I think is really great. Um, yeah, because you can get around without having a car, and that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this. I wish, like, I could just not have my car sometimes, just because, I don't know, I feel like coming from, I was talking to you about this earlier, campus, which is a walking school, you could just walk to class, walk to your house, walk to the city, if you want to walk to the grocery store, you could. It's, I don't know, I miss that feel, and I think downtown obviously has that, but I think uh, the rest of Vegas is still kind of working on that, or hopefully maybe we'll see some more... Uh, accessibility within different neighborhoods. Definitely. And one of the dynamics that surprised me in Vegas, um, and I realize I'm harping on kind of the negatives, and I I really like it here, and after this we can talk about things I like. So (laughs) I'm kind of exhausting the things I don't like, frankly. But um, one of the things that's been interesting, especially opening a business that's meant to appeal to a pretty broad demographic swath of the city, like we're a bookstore, so the idea is like, you know, it's supposed to be something that a lot of people, both in the downtown area and in the suburbs, ideally would be interested in coming to. And we have faced a lot of resistance from folks who live in the suburbs about coming downtown. There's still an incredible stigma about the downtown area. Um, You know, sometimes this this is expressed as an anxiety about parking, and sometimes it's expressed as an anxiety about crime and poverty. And so... And it's different because in New York, at least where I grew up, it was considered very, um, like, it was a thing to do. It was considered culturally very, like, valuable to take trips into the city if you lived in the suburbs. Yeah. And it was always touted as a plus. Like, you live on Long Island and you're 45 minutes from the city, you can go to a museum or a Broadway show and then take the train back. Yeah. Vegas? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Even from... Uh, living in Jersey, I was about a two-hour train ride from New York, and definitely was, like, when we had the chance to go, like, even being two hours, like, that was a huge plus for where we lived, and it was so convenient, and just, like, okay, we're going to New York, like, there's, there's not gonna be, there's not gonna be any problems, like, we have so much that we can do, and it was very, um, I don't want to say, like, I guess a treat 
in a, in a sense. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I and it's and I think it's complicated because obviously downtown Vegas is not New York City or Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It's downtown mm-hmm. Vegas. It's a little smaller. There's yeah. maybe less on offer, but there's quite a lot to do. And I think getting mm-hmm. over that stigma that people have for downtown. Um, that's been tricky and that's one of the sort of disappointments but I think it's also yeah. an area that um where the city can absolutely evolve and grow as people Definitely. become more comfortable with the idea of coming down here yeah for people who do live more on the outskirts of Vegas and who have those complaints about coming down here what would you recommend to them or what would you say like about downtown um I would say don't be afraid uh yeah. and I mean that kind of like this is really cheesy and like but like I mean like I kind of mean that in like a bigger like afraid with a capital a like it's like like you know be open to experiences and um Mm -hmm. you know like it's i mean it's good to expose yourself to things that you don't see every day um and to to soak in a neighborhood and wander around um you know is the area like maybe does it have rough edges like absolutely but like that's like you're not gonna be harmed by those that's every city though yeah i i think my impression when I first moved here, it was, Vegas to me was that sinful city that you could just fill any sort of id, the, uh, id notion that you had, and yeah, it was taught to me that crime was big here. So when I moved here, my family was like, uh, like, be careful, like, you sure? Like, don't go out at night, that sort of thing. And then, obviously, coming downtown more and just being more aware, like, I don't know. I feel like it's it's fairly safe here, and it's really I don't know. I feel like there's still such a stigma over it, but there doesn't need to be. Yeah, it it, it I think it's fairly safe, and I mean this is like a little like intense for maybe the purposes of what we were planning to talk about, but I'll just go there briefly. Like I mean there there is a lot of poverty downtown still, um, and it's upsetting. But yeah. like I actually think that there's a, a moral and kind of social and civic value and not being blind to those things yeah um and being aware that they exist and if it upsets you like it should upset you and like that's okay like you will you will survive the experience of being upset and you might have a larger uh a more expanded sense of the community you live in and a a better opportunity to make different kinds of decisions politically and otherwise down the road so and I think that it you know there's there's a value to that um and it's part of why I like living downtown I don't like feeling like I'm divorced from all other kinds of reality, right? Like, I think yeah. there's... If in the suburbs, you know, it... Life... I don't know. It just... It feels like you're not really getting a panoramic view of how no. the world works. Yeah, definitely coming from... Like I said, I live um Centennial Hills area, and it's very, like, suburbs, like, a lot of neighborhoods, a little school, and then that's really it. And, you know, you have your shopping centers and that sort of thing. But I, when I first came here, that was all I knew. Go to work, go home say in that area and you really kind of get I don't know if Jada is the right word but you get this different reality I guess and you don't get the full picture and I think um I think when you see some of the realities like you said with the poverty and the homeless population that we do have here it's it's a good idea just like you said as like a human and kind of doing your civic duty not to put those blinders on yeah yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I agree with all that. I don't know. Sorry to get so intense. No, but. it's okay. No, I, I love kind of the stream of consciousness conversations. And it's funny because when I would go to New York, I definitely felt like I had to have those blinders on and I had to be like, even though it was fun and like I said, it was kind of a treat to go there. We were there to do those fun things. I wasn't there to kind of mingle with anybody else or I wasn't there to, I don't know, like... I feel like in New York City, you have those people who are, like, trying to pass out, like, flyers or, like, try to talk to you or the people who dress up in the, like, in Times Square, like, dress up in the characters and, like, when I have pictures of you and people can get in your face or you you might see somebody homeless who is asking for money. And I think um, coming from small town going into the city, it was definitely, like, all right, just, like, don't look at anybody I don't know. I feel like that's kind of the New York vibe sometimes or the East northern East Coast vibe. Like, just do your thing. Don't look at anybody else. Like, just go through life, you know. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> it's really interesting that you're bringing that up because I, I agree. And often when I talk to people back in New York about one of the differences of living here is I do feel that it's it is much harder in Vegas to be socially segregated in the way that I was in New York. Like, mm-hmm. I never interacted... Everyone I interacted with in New York was, like, very similar to me. It was yeah. the overall vibe. And that was, like, living there. That wasn't even just visiting to go see a Broadway show. Like, that was life there every day, 365 yeah. days a year. And in Vegas, that's... It's partly because the city is more raw, and I think it's younger, more raw, smaller. You That's not an option. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a pretty f- fabulous thing because I just know a much... My pool of friends and acquaintances here is is far more diverse by every conceivable metric um and i just life feels more real here in a way and i I, like that's a very vague thing to say but that's how it feels yeah i would agree with that so um what were some of because you mentioned you didn't want to talk too much about the negative what are some of the positive and good things that you really well that's one of the positives is that i think that this city is is it's a it's a boom town mm. and you just get thrown into the you know the the pot sorry I'm trying not to say melting pot which is such a <laughs> cliche yeah um and it's blah whatever anyway but regardless um but yeah I mean you just you meet a lot of different people here and that and more so it feels like than anywhere else I've lived including New York City so mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about Vegas um and there, there is opportunity here. And I, I know that people who have grown up here and have a vested interest in this city, um, I think they can sometimes be, you know, very rightfully resentful of outsiders coming in and being like, oh, it's, you know, it's the West and it's all untamed territory and I can do whatever <laughs> I want here. I think that that is obviously BS. Um, yeah. But that said, it is a developing city. It's in, it, it changes a lot and reinvents itself a lot. And mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of opportunity here. And that's a great thing about being here. Yeah, I was just about to say, and I feel like even though, um, as you were mentioning, maybe some people might be resentful against outsiders, um, I do feel like most of the people, at least that I've talked to and have have seen in the small business here, are pretty open to different ideas and willing to collaborate and work together. Absolutely. I think that what we, what my personal experience opening the writer's block was there was a lot of initial skepticism amongst people who had been here for a while, especially in our business, a bookstore in 20, we opened in 20, uh, at the end of 2014. Uh Um, It's obviously like, you know, the narrative about book selling today is, is built around Amazon.com and the idea that independent bookstores or really that brick and mortar bookstores generally are disappearing. So Mm -hmm. I think there was there was skepticism. But I think that once we had kind of opened and proven ourselves a bit, that went away very quickly. And there was a lot of really generous, like unstinting support from from people who were local or had been here a while. And I mean, I think any big developing city depends upon the energy and lifeblood of newcomers also. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's just part of a healthy part of being in a city. If you're too territorial, it's it won't work. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's, you know, I, that's that's been a, a thing here, an evolving thing here, that yeah. acceptance to outsiders, I think. Yeah. So you said that the reaction from the community was pretty positive when you first opened. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, the skepticism that I'm referring to was not by any means an overwhelming or, or super frequent thing. It was yeah. like here and there. But yeah, it was very positive. I think people were excited to have an independent general interest yeah. bookstore in the city. Um, you know, people are constantly bemoaning that Vegas has no culture, which I personally don't don't buy that yeah, statement. Um, that. But regardless, <laughs> like it was there was just excitement over having a bookstore store here where mm-hmm. they had there hadn't been one for so long um yeah. i think like readers are you know on the one hand tend to be introverted um people <laughs> but on the other hand they like i mean there's not a whole there aren't that many venues for readers to get together and sure. socialize yeah. and so to have just one more of those i think was was very valuable to yeah. people here definitely like you said i think a lot of the other outlets or you know a lot of book sales are done online now and if you go to like a library you know it's supposed to be a quiet thing it's not supposed to be (laughs) like getting together and having uh having community workshops and that sort of thing totally and i mean libraries are great and actually las vegas has like the most like what what's your policy on cussing if it's mild oh you're fine okay has the most kick-ass library system like i would agree the one library i've only been to one so the one by me is 
phenomenal. Yeah. You can you have so many resources, so I would never knock a library, but you, it's definitely yes. different. Yes. And what yeah. I was going to say is so so I was not to knock libraries and they're amazing here, but like obviously like I mean and I think any you know, hip young people who are readers, like <laughs> I don't know that library is the first thing that springs to mind. And also right. the you know, the the audience that a library has to serve is necessarily pretty wide. Um so the kinds yeah. of programming they can do is maybe not going to be as experimental or provocative. Um Mm-hmm. So it just, I think it was a piece of a, of a larger literary uh, mosaic that was missing, yeah. was having a bookstore that was a little more editorial in its, its perspective than like a library would be, or a university would be. Yeah, definitely. So obviously for people who may not understand, when you have a retail store, the buying that goes into it, it's it's almost like an equation because you're, uh, you're buying for a client to make sure that your books will sell and, you know, widening their perspective as well. So can you talk about your experience buying books for the, the writer's block? Yeah, it's, there's so many facets to buying. Um, there's a lot of different angles you can take. And obviously mm. the, that, the, the idea of trying to, it's sort of the, the, if there was any kind of really general equation I could reduce it to, it would be balancing your own tastes and sensibilities against the expectations of your customers. And that's mm. assuming that you even can gauge those expectations accurately. Right. But you're trying to ask yourself what will sell to people in this city. And when you're first opening, it's like, I don't, know that yet so I'm gonna kind of cast a somewhat wide net and then just start winnowing it down when I see what is selling Mm -hmm. but it's important not to betray your own tastes I think yeah um because people can tell when you're pandering um Mm -hmm. if there's anything I've learned it's like don't pander like that's like my message to people who are book buyers in other communities a really good example might would be um that's really recent is the is the Michael Wolff book about Donald Trump Fire and Fury, okay, which yeah. was like this huge publishing sensation, um, and you know I I haven't actually read the book and I don't I don't have the time nor the intention of reading it partly just because I don't read a lot of current affairs titles, um, and the publisher for that book was really wonderful in terms of their support of indies, so I certainly don't want to. Um, my intention isn't to slight them or the book by any stretch, but I know that I went way overboard on ordering that book, for example, assuming that there was going to be an interest for it that, frankly, Mm -hmm. I myself didn't really have and was somewhat skeptical of. And lo and behold, like, this is a minor loss, but, like, I'm stuck with, like, 12 unsold copies now, and I'm like, oh, yeah, why did I do that? Like, I Mm -hmm. knew this was pandering. I knew that, like, I wasn't that interested in this book, per se, after week one, and I kind of knew my customers wouldn't be, and yet I went against my better instincts. So, I mean, that's just one example, um, a negative one in this case of like, of trust your gut when you're buying and don't like assume that your audience at the, at your bookstore or any kind of retail, assume they have the kind of taste you have and the kind of like dignity that you imagine yourself to have, because they, they probably do. And if you pander, they'll know and they won't buy the books. So that's part of it. So, Yeah. yeah. So, um, from opening to now having more experience and understanding, you know, kind of what your client wants, how have you changed how you have bought books? I, I largely, I mean, it's, it's been too, I mean, part of it is just responding to what sells. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certain areas and categories that are so popular, at least in Vegas. Like, what would those be? so, I mean, our bread and butter remains just fiction, like standard literary fiction. Okay. But by like God, our horror section I can like is is chronically um, anemic because people are buying out <laughs> really? of it so much. Our folklore section, the genre fictions like sci-fi and uh-huh. fantasy are super popular, and I think are having a, a renaissance just generally speaking. So those have been areas that I learned. Um, were ones to capitalize on. Yeah. I'll just restate the fact that I, 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 there's, that I have learned to really trust my own instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the books that I'm excited about are the one they tend to sell partly because I'm excited about them and, and sell them to people. Yeah. And so I, I try not to, if there's something I'm not into, if there's a book I'm skeptical about, uh-huh. I'm really, I'm learning that like, don't order it like, or carry one of it. Like you're probably yeah, right. Even it. exactly. Even if the publisher is telling you that they're printing, you know, a hundred thousand of them and it's a must have, like, you know, in your gut, like whether that's true for your store and what's yeah. true for your store may not be true for maybe every other independent bookstore in the country, but you right. know, after a while, um, I mean, this is, like, very book industry specific, but, like, we had a romance section. Uh-huh. We no longer have a romance section because that that genre um, has definitely 
that has migrated to digital in a way that other genres have not. So okay. I feel that, you know, romance readers have really embraced um, e-reading and mm-hmm. and doing, uh, you know, e-books almost exclusively. Okay. So that was a very easy cut to make, and we yeah. haven't really seen a demand for it subsequently. Although, I could bite my tongue because I, I know that there is a, I believe it's in the Bay Area, there's like a romance-only independent bookstore. So what's yeah. true in our market may not be true everywhere, but that was definitely the case in Vegas. Exactly, yeah. So um, now, what are some of the more pop? You said horror now, and yeah. sci-fi are are pretty popular. What are some of the other genres that you carry? There's definitely, a, and unsurprisingly, given like the moment we're in. Um, uh, there's a real interest in social science books, so books about um, about politics, economics, gender, class, etc., race, but mm-hmm. specifically more kind of broad, like social science titles and aren't about you know capitalizing on like a political mania and are more analytic. So like yeah. that's been really popular, and um, we are actually moving our store um, soon. We hope this summer to a larger location, which I'm really stoked about, um, and that's going to be a section that I you know triple basically will be okay. our social science titles mm-hmm. because that's been and then oh poetry and I think this is across the country but like people are reading poetry way more than I anticipated every week when I run reports on what's selling there's so many poetry books and it's poetry that's like kind of upstart and like people in like academia would probably consider lowbrow that maybe originated on Instagram and Tumblr that's selling really well and I don't care if it sells well that's great like um and then but also the really highbrow academic snobby stuff not to be critical of it um is selling really well too like all so poetry in general I'm shocked by how well poetry sells so anyone out there who feels like poetry is not having a moment should uh visit their local independent bookstore because I think they'd be surprised by how many units are being moved of poetry yeah. yeah definitely um so from what i know from visiting do you carry i know you carry some local zines from like gene munson who mm-hmm. i've had on the podcast before yeah do you have any other local titles we so local is tricky like we've experimented um i mean it this is very like nuts and bolts but um carrying books from local outfits and authors can be tricky from a logistical perspective mm-hmm. just in terms of receiving ordering invoicing etc yeah like for me i i work with over a dozen unique publisher distributors as it is and that's just for books and that doesn't include any of our non-book merchandise yeah so being able like already generating purchase orders receiving the 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 books and the merch paying for it is it's a lot of work so if if you end up working individually with like sort of either self-published or self-manufactured if it's not a book like Mm -hmm. products um i mean each of those people becomes a new supplier so it's a lot of work so we've i've experimented i've gone back and forth um i definitely carry traditionally published book titles that have a Vegas focus or are were written by Vegas authors. Okay. Like Laura McBride is one of our best selling authors, you know, period, full stop, uh-huh. um, at the store and she lives in Vegas and writes about Vegas. She's a novelist. Um, okay. So, and then that's true of, you know, even authors who grew up either in Vegas or nearby Vegas, like uh-huh. Claire V. Watkins, who is a very, um, you know, nationally, you know, critically lauded fiction writer um, who grew up uh, in at least partly in Pahrump, um, okay. and writes a lot about the Mojave um, in her fiction, and, and has a, a short story collection called uh-huh. Battleborn, in fact, about the stories all set in Nevada. Uh-huh. Um, so in that sense, absolutely. And mm-hmm. if people who live here are interested about are, are interested in reading about this area, so we do carry those kinds of things. The zines were a special um, product in that we had, and I I hope to continue to have, a lot of support from this guy named Jeff Grinley, um, Uh who manages and created the Las Vegas Zine Library here in Vegas. And so we were actually doing events with him um, that we haven't done in a little while, but I'm hoping to restart, where it was Mm -hmm. sort of a clearinghouse where people would come in, bring zines, and then we would sort of just collect a bunch of them and put them on sale in the store on consignment. So with when there's kind of an event built into it, um, it definitely is easier to work with like with local folks in that way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's actually how um, we ended up working at Jean Marie originally. And then she has taught workshops in our space, so um, which is super generous of her and, and her the friends that of hers that taught those with her. So um, there's just a lot of really good synergy there. Yeah, definitely. So going to the workshops that you have for the kids, uh, you said five through 18. 
age yes, that you work yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what are some of the classes that you put on? So, all of them are are uh, project oriented, which okay. is like a, a fancy way of saying like they make a thing and they take it with them. So, okay. So we're really not like I think one of the deficiencies in how writing is taught in schools is that it's very it's it's not often coordinated with a project and it's very disembodied. So you're just like writing a story, maybe, probably not a story, probably a paper, but let's even say you write a short story in class and then like what happens with it? Nothing. Like it gets graded, maybe, and then it just kind of, that's it. I mean, and then with papers, of course, it's like you're, you're writing to satisfy the requirements of a teacher who grades it and then that's where it begins and ends. So with us, we really try to enforce the idea that writing is used to make all kinds of, uh, you know, pop cultural and products ranging from books to movies to video games to songs. And so we try to have everything be oriented towards that. So when you write in one of our workshops, if you're a student, your story appears in an anthology that we print and produce and make available to you um, to take with you. So you now have a book that you're part of. Or we did songwriting where they wrote and recorded songs. We do a filmmaking institute where they write screenplays with a UNLV film student, and then the film gets made and screened at the Las Vegas Film Festival. That's so cool. So it's all just about having a project that is is uh, involved in your writing you know and enterprise because yeah. if it's not if there's no project then it's just it's not gonna be appealing and it, it won't right. have much of a lasting impact I think yeah that's really cool I, I never I knew you had the workshops but I never knew they actually like if they had the anthology and they they publish yeah thing, so. we don't sell them in the store sure, at least yeah. now which is something we talk about and think about but of course like it it creates various complications um so but yeah we we, we all of them are are there's there's some kind of project that gets made and even with the field trips which are only two hours um those are designed around each kid making a book that they take with them so those aren't professionally bound in that case but we bind them using this machine called a powis parker Uh and they all get a copy of that book and they even get their author photo taken and like applied to the back of the book so it's like so exciting for a kid like i can only imagine like if that was something i had when i was in school like just how wonderful that must be they really get into it it's super fun and it makes it like it just makes the creative writing so much less abstract Mm -hmm. um and they i think they have more of a sense of accomplishment after having done that yeah so i mean it's not like the schools have to do what they have to do um Mm -hmm. but there just isn't a lot of room right now at least in in clark county for indulging those kinds of creative and I shouldn't say indulging because I don't think that they're an indulgence I think they're necessary but um it just kind of falls off of the list of priorities yeah definitely I would agree um, so how can kids sign up for these workshops? So them? we have a few different avenues. So we have, um, indi- like we have standalone workshops, um, that run usually for three to six sessions. Mm-hmm. And those are available on our website, thewritersblot.org. Um, our workshop and performance space is called Codex. So you click a little link at the top that says Codex okay. and they're all listed there. So parents and children can just sign up that way. Uh-huh. Same thing with our clubs, which are not standalone in the sense that they, they they meet again and again and again throughout the year. We have like a young readers book club that meets Saturdays. Okay. We have two high school writers clubs that alternate between Thursdays and Wednesdays. Uh-huh. Those can also be signed up for on the website. And then our field trips, which are available to grades one through five, um, and also homeschooling groups that are uh, sufficiently large, like 12 or more and combine ages that are compatible. Like we try okay. to keep it at one to two year age margin. So yeah. we don't necessarily want to do a field trip for five year olds on one end and at the same time like twelve year olds at the other. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't work so well. But anyway, um but all of those folks are welcome. You basically just shoot us an email through our site and we just get you on the schedule. Um yeah. we're in the process of moving the store as I mentioned. Um so we're actually kind of uh dimming the lights on some of that programming temporarily, but mm-hmm. when we get relocated sometime later in the year we'll we'll be back to do them at the the usual frequency yeah i'm really excited to see that development yeah thank you i'm really excited too (laughs) so there's a limited amount of what i can say um for various reasons but we are the store is relocating it will still be in the downtown area walking distance from where we are now and that that was super important to us so we're we're still very much invested in this neighborhood um and we'll we'll have more space for everything for for books and merchandise and also for uh our, our programming for for kids and also our events for adults so our book clubs and 
author signings and all that. Yeah, this is just a random thought, but will the rabbit be going to your new store? He will be. I We have a pet rabbit. I, What's I, its name? Because I don't know. The Baron. The Baron. Yeah, I, he, I, I, I he's, he's, he's treasured by all. I have various, <laughs> I, he, I think he'll be coming. I might, we might actually decide to kind of retire him from public life a bit. We might, like, just, he gets a lot of attention and I sometimes worry about his sanity. So I think we might, <laughs> like, he, I don't know if he's going to be on display in the same way he is now. Okay. Um, but he's, he's coming with us yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll see Baron. Yeah, again. he'll be he'll be available. I just don't know in what capacity How exactly. How old is he? That's like a real question because when we adopted him, um, we were told that he was possibly six or seven, and that was almost four years ago. Oh, which how long did rabbits live? Supposedly ten years, and. The people I've spoken with who have had 10-year-old rabbits have said that those 10-year-old rabbits were rather, like, decrepit, to put uh, to put it bluntly. And the Baron is not decrepit. He's, like, very robust and yeah. lively. So I don't know. I have no idea. He's anywhere between the age of 1 and 10. At the, well, I guess 3 and 10. <laughs> three, or, and ten. 3 and a half and 10, because that's how long we've had him. Yeah. So, yeah. That's funny. Okay. Um, why not you tell me some of the books that you're excited about that um, are maybe coming out on market or just books that you have been enjoying sure so the last amazing book that I read was a novel uh, is a novel called Mrs. Caliban that was recently reissued by New Directions it had been published in 1983 Mm -hmm. and then I don't think had been reprinted since then um, and has acquired like a cult following we read it for the book club that I run, which is called the Better Half Book Club. We only read books written by women, um, which is not actually, like, the, I just happen to, I just love, I I don't really read a lot of contemporary f- fiction by men, and so I'm just like, just screw it. There's nothing, like, political about this. It's just, like, I just like women writers better, so that's yeah. what we're going to read, that's period. Cool. Anyway, so that's that's the book club I run. Anyway, this book was, like, unanimously adored by everyone in the book club, which was does not happen often, and it's I can't recommend it highly enough, mm-hmm. and everyone I've recommended it to subsequently has loved it. Um, it's about a, a sort of, like, a... a bored, sad housewife in, like, the kind of Los Angeles area uh, falling in love with a a creature, a a fish man that escapes from a research institute. It sounds really goofy, but it's actually, like, so full of heart and sincerity and it's really beautifully written. And, like, it clocks in at, like, 110 pages or something, so it's also pretty quick. Okay. So I loved that novel. Um... I'm reading this really dark novel called The Perfect Nanny right now that has been kind of marketed as pulp in the United States, but which won very, very big literary prize in France and is actually a very sophisticated literary novel that happens to be about a murderous nanny. Um, If you're interested in something dark, but very good and very... Uh, mature and and uh, respectful of its of its uh, subject matter, even though it's kind of lurid. Um, I highly recommend it. And then in terms of upcoming books, I'm very excited for uh, Curtis Sittenfeld's debut collection of short stories. Okay. She's a novelist that has published. Uh, a handful of books over the years and has a, a pretty big following, but this is her first short story volume. And the, a lot of these stories have been printed in magazines elsewhere and were some of the best reading that I've done uh, when they came out. So I'm super excited for that. That collection is called uh, You Say It, I'll... No, excuse me. You Think It, I'll Say It is the title, which is a good title. Um, so I'll have to check that out. It's really good. Yeah, and then <laughs> that's... I, I'm, I'm a fiction person, so of course all these picks are fiction. Um, I wish I had some good nonfiction to recommend off the top of my head but those are just some of the ones that I'm either reading now or looking forward to very cool is there maybe one or a couple different books um like growing up that you had read that you feel like has defined your you now or that you just really really love and yeah I mean my tastes are very idiosyncratic um and I don't pretend that they translate to like a lot of of the customer. So I, I love 19th century fiction and that's uh-huh. been like, that's the single most, uh, valuable body of literature for me. Um, I'm obsessed with Edith Wharton and pretty much anything she mm-hmm. wrote. The House of Mirth is probably my favorite novel of all time. And it's about a socialite having to make the painful decision about 
marrying or not marrying and the consequences of that, um, which I realize sounds like something that, like, no one could or would want to relate to today, but is Uh, actually... Yeah, no, I think that's so relatable still. It is! I mean, it's... Oh, it's, like, the greatest book ever, and if you haven't read The House of Mirth, I absolutely recommend it, but, um... But it's very pressing in terms of, like, oh, it's just so good. Um, So, I, I mean, that book is probably my favorite. I love anything by Henry James and Jane Austen. And mm-hmm. Jane Austen, of course, continues to enjoy, like, unmitigated popularity, which yeah. is great. And it's, so, um, so those are probably the most defining books. I mean, otherwise, what am I forgetting? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say those, that 19th century lit is, I'm a, I, conti- I have always been, or since I have started reading in my teens, been obsessed with it and continue to be today. So awesome. that's where it's at for me. Yeah. So for anybody who is interested in becoming a small business owner or kind of conceptualize, taking that conceptualized idea of a, I don't know, like a new idea, a new independent store, what would you say to them about owning a business? There's a lot of facets to running a business. um, And there's like no one I mean, I, there's a few things I'd recommend and some are boring and some are more, um, fun and broad, but like, I think for Mm -hmm. one thing, obviously just like, you know, you need to create a, you know, a business plan that includes a profit and loss projection. And you need to be really honest about that plan and really think about, I mean, if you're opening a retail business, like, I hope that you've worked retail before. And if you haven't, like maybe go out and get a retail job for a while so that you can actually really imagine, like it's one thing to say, I need to sell X number of books today to make rent for the week. It's another thing to be able to visualize yourself in a retail space, selling that number of books. And you'll have a much clearer sense of whether what you want to do is, is possible Mm -hmm. or not. So I think that that's like just trying to get some kind of clarity about whether your idea actually is, is doable or not is really important at the outset set um and making the necessary modifications to make it doable is is necessary like I think if you're opening a bookstore like for example you know consider like selling other things like what are the other products that you're going to sell that will get people into the store um and will provide a revenue source so that you're not just depending on books. I mean, th- those kinds of decisions. Um, and just talking to people in the industry mm-hmm. informally, I think, is almost better than trying to do it through formal channels. Because yeah. you'll get really, like, just, I mean, people in most industries, especially retail, love talking about what they do mm-hmm. and like complaining about the things they hate and praising the things they love so they're kind of open books no pun intended so just approach them and you know I think that's all really important um and then I guess like more broadly speaking um just think about make sure that no one make sure that what you're doing is unique and that no one else is doing it exactly the way you're doing it yeah. um and I think y- you can't fake interest in something if you don't have it so I think it's also just important to be realistic about what you love doing mm-hmm. and be patient and allow yourself to I think today there's such a fixation on um finding your vocation or calling and then pursuing it relentlessly to its full realization. And I don't think that that's how life works. I think that it, it sometimes can take a long time to figure out what you're going to do. And sometimes you fall into it by accident. It's not like a tidy narrative. So mm-hmm. I think being open to that is important. Um, yeah. And not being too crushed by the plans that don't work out and being open to the alternatives that will appear out of those, those momentary failures. Definitely. I think that's some great advice. So to wrap up, I like to ask everybody who's on the podcast three questions. Mm. So for people who are outsiders or new to the city or even tourists, what would you like them to know about Las Vegas? Um, That Las Vegas has a vibrant and growing literary scene, um, which it does. In particular, uh, I mean... The UNLV campus is home to a ton of political, excuse me, not political, although I'm sure that too, um, of literary activity right now, um, partly in the form of Black Mountain Institute, which is a terrific literary endowment that hosts writers for six months to a year, really big name, excellent writers who are available to the community on and off campus. Um, And they also have recently become the publisher of The Believer Magazine, which is a nationally distributed and very popular literary uh, bi-monthly periodical. So, and, you know, with our store here and soon to be growing, there's a lot of literary fun here. So that's, of course, my own my two cents yeah on what people I love should it. know so when you're not at the writer's block and you have some time to um 
like go relax or hang out or go to eat? Where do you like to go? So I'll preface this by saying I have no time now. <laughs> my life is miserable. I'm just kidding. Um, but we, as I mentioned, became foster parents mm-hmm. somewhat recently. And Scott and I, for the most part, work six to seven days a week and have been doing that since opening. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of time. But I will answer that question and say that before at least I became a foster parent, the thing I love to do was to actually is to take a lift out to an off-the-strip casino and go to a movie by myself, preferably at a station casino like Sam's Town okay. or Texas Station. Yeah. This sounds really weird, but if you're not in Vegas... Um, something you might be interested to know is that most of our movie theaters are inside yeah, casinos. Yeah, that was weird for me. And it's, <laughs> but it's kind of a fun total experience to like go to wander around in this weird space, grab a bite to eat. I bring a book and just park somewhere and read for a while, go to a movie. And it's just, it's, it's the closest approximation I've gotten to wandering around a city mm-hmm. like New York in terms of the amount of stimulation. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's what I love to do. So there you go. Very cool. I love it. And then last Lastly, where can people um, find out more about Writer's Block, um, like the website, any sure. social media? Sure. So thewritersblock.org is our website, um, and it will remain our website no matter where our store ends up moving to, so you can certainly bookmark that and follow it. We're on social media. On Facebook, we are the Writer's Block LV. On Instagram, we are also the Writer's Block LV. And on Twitter, we are Writer's Block LV, because when I created these accounts, I didn't know about the character limit on Twitter. I know! That's so weird! <laughs> it's, yeah. I'm also not a social media maven, so this was something I had to learn. But anyway, those are our social media handles. You can follow us there as well. Um, and I encourage you to do so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Drew. This was such a fun conversation. I loved learning more about you and uh, the writer's block. I'm really excited to see where it goes. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to, to listening and listening to all the other installments of this podcast and seeing where it goes. Thank you so much. Of course. If you want to stay, baby, you can stay. Truth is, I don't want you to go. If you wanna stay, baby, you can stay. Thank you.
were just listening to Vice by Scartoon featuring Rhea. You can find his music on Spotify and SoundCloud. Please make sure you go visit the links in the description to find those. Um, He is having a final show in Las Vegas, which will be happening April 20th at the Hard Hat. Um, All the information will be down below so you can find tickets for that. Um, I just want to give a really great big thank you to Drew from the Writer's Block. It was really nice being able to get to know him better, and I truly enjoyed our conversation. It was uh, really nice to be able to chat about East Coast lifestyle versus Las Vegas lifestyle, and um, I can't wait to see where him and Scott, his husband, take Writer's Block. They are going to be moving in the near future uh, downtown. And I think there's going to be a lot of exciting things happening. So make sure you follow all their social media. Stop in because they have some rad books and Drew knows his stuff. When I'm saying if you're asking for any sort of recommendations or you pick out a book and say, hey, like, can you tell me about this? He will tell you in detail and he will give you reviews and like what other people think. So he's a source of knowledge and just a wonderful person in in general. So thank you, Drew. Of course, you should like, subscribe, and review the Socialista podcast because we're supporting Las Vegas locals and uh, it's important to leave us a review so more people can find it and share it with some friends. Tell them what's going on here in Vegas. As always, thank you to Ferguson's Downtown for the Tiny Home Recording Studio, to Chop 808 for the theme music, and Abby Paulus for the graphic art. As always, you can find my links in the description as well. Um, I'm always on Instagram, so to find me or chat with me, you can go to at socialistalv. I also have email. It's socialista.llc at gmail.com. You can email me who you want to hear on the podcast or if you're a a band or a musician. I want your song featured because I do that every single week and I'm always looking for people. So just keep that in mind and shoot me an email, okay? Make sure you come back next Friday for a cool episode with Amy Elizabeth.